Hey everybody, this is Greg Pettit, and you are listening to the 11th issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. Um, I've had many episodes where I've misspoke, and by misspoke, I mean drunkenly forgotten to say something, or said the wrong thing, and then had to add a addendum the next episode uh, to either change something or tell you something I forgot to tell you for the certain year chronicled in that episode. Um, but today is a, hopefully not a, the beginning of a, a new thing, but, uh, I have to give an apology because, uh, the last episode, issue number 10, I, uh, it was late at night and I was very drunk and I thought I could do it. And I kind of almost finished the episode. I kind of got through 1957 and I typed in all the information when I was done. So obviously I had that kind of lucidity. Um, and I pressed publish. So the next morning I realized, hey, I can listen to it. I forgot I did that last night because I kind of blacked out. And then I listened to it and about a half an hour in, uh, which the whole time I was slurring very much. And it was kind of hard to even understand what I was saying. But uh, half an hour in, I start rambling for a minute or so as if I was half asleep. And then I passed out. And the last half of the episode for half an hour is me snoring in bed. And I was uh, I was shocked and appalled, frankly, uh, at my level of professionalism. Um, I know this is one of the worst podcasts ever made as far as sound quality preparation and uh, the mental state of the host. But I had to have some standards. And, you know, I tried, I deleted it. And then I realized, nah, I'm going to republish it. Because the, I guess the file was still there. So it wasn't lost to the ages. So basically, just stop listening after 32 minutes, I believe it is. I don't see anything else after that. If you are a fan of hearing snoring, if you kind of like that sound, you're going to love the last podcast. But I just want to apologize to my listeners who might have been excited to see an hour-long episode, which is way longer than we've ever done here. And I, by we, I mean me. I don't know. I'm not Queen Victoria. I don't know why I'm using the royal we in this situation. But... um yeah, so sorry about that, guys. Hopefully it won't happen again. It's only uh, 5.50 p.m. on July 4th here, so uh, I should be able to stay up to finish this. So uh, this is going to be a maybe a big episode. Maybe it won't be. Um, definitely won't involve snoring or me talking in my sleep. And uh, because we are now getting close to wrapping up the 50s, we are in 1958 now, and I want to talk to you about the exciting developments that have occurred or have never occurred in the imaginary comic book company, Amazing Comics Group, throughout the, this year. So, uh, like every other year, we've been just unleashing new titles every year in January. And this year, it's exciting. Once again... An obvious knockoff of something that lived was in our world. But, you know, I'm not clever. And I couldn't even picture something better than this. So, 
1958, we debut Dr. Warlock by Steve Ditko. Obviously, that's Dr. Strange. It would just be a, it would be Dr. Strange. Because um, from all accounts, Steve Ditko, even Stan Lee, of all the times he uh, claimed that he created something, even though the artist did most of the work, it's like Dr. Strange pretty much seems like a Steve Ditko thing. Um, I'm sure Stan Lee edited it, uh, changed a few things about character, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, cleaned it up. But that is such a Steve Ditko creation. Steve Ditko, one of the, my favorite artists of all time in comics history. Definitely singular, unique vision as far as art and writing when he wrote later on for himself. Uh, he's kind of nut. A nut. He's, um, in his later years, he became just this didactic, senile old man spouting out these Ayn Rand philosophies, almost like a Jack T. Chick tract his comics were. This is self-published black and white comics. But they're also great because, wow, this is the pure distillation of a man whose brain is slowly getting a little spinning off, if you will. But at the time, Steve Ditko was the best. Such a great artist, especially for like fantasy, sorcery, um, of course, uh, Doctor Strange, the comic that this is basically ripping off, but in our world, it would actually be the first one. We'd have Steve Ditko already hanging out, drawing comics for us, and Amazing Weekly, fun little science fiction stories and fantasy stories. But uh, we realized Steve Ditko will have the idea, yeah, I'd like to do this comic about a sorcerer and all the crazy vistas I can draw, and we're going to let him. And... Uh, Thank God he let us do that. So uh, it's not much largesse there. It's just us being grateful that Steve Ditko wants to draw a monthly comic for us. If you've ever read Doctor Strange, some of the most proto-psychedelic art ever. Steve Ditko never touched drugs in his life from all accounts. But in the early 60s, he was drawing these amazing um, alternate dimensions, magical dimensions, like no one had ever drawn them. Um, giant jaws, dragon's jaws floating in space with a path that looks like a huge ribbon and creatures walking on this ribbon path. It's hard to describe Steve Ditko. Um, he's amazing, though. He's, sometimes he had like full-page spreads of this stuff. And you could have totally turned that into a poster a few years later and sold it to every hippie in uh, San Francisco. They would have bought it. When they were tripping balls, they would have grooved on it and been like, whoa, man, that's fucking hot gnarly. But Steve Ditko didn't need drugs. Just a very inspired, unique artist who had his own vision of the universe, I guess, in reality. But for the most part, he you know, drew pretty straight, which made it even better. And uh, just... Uh, God, if you don't know Steve Ditko, you got to find some of his choice stuff. Had a lot of bad stuff in his later years. Kind of hacked out a lot of shit, you know, for all these companies that he didn't even want to work for. Because he was a very principled man. At the height of his fame, drawing Spider-Man, which of course he co-created with Stan Lee. 
probably had more to do with Spider-Man's success than Stanley. Well, that's arguable, of course. I just figure if Spider-Man didn't look like that, even if it was a great comic, he's got the, one of the best costumes in superior history, Spider-Man. It was a big selling point. But, uh, yeah, Steve Ditko, at the height of his career, had the biggest success in comics, just walked away because he didn't like the philosophical attitude of Stan Lee, and he argued with him about it. He also had other reasons, like Stan Lee wasn't giving him nearly enough credit and not paying him for basically doing the heavy lifting and actually writing the comic as well as drawing it. It still said for a long time, Stan Lee script, Steve Ditko art. Later on, he did say, okay, co-created by or Ditko plotted it. But that didn't give him much money, even though he pretty much wrote the whole goddamn thing, especially with Doctor Strange. But in our reality, there never is a Doctor Strange because there's Doctor Warlock in 58. Steve Ditko did enter the comics field in 1955. And by 1958, he had already developed an amazing style. So it's not a stretch. This is going to be an amazing comic. Primo Steve Ditko. And doing what he does best. Crazy, proto-psychedelic, you know, stuff. So... I'm really happy about this addition to our stable. Adds to the universe. Maybe Dr. Warlock will meet uh, Beowulf in some issue. Or maybe he'll meet Captain Action. These things can all happen now. Because we're building up a superior universe. But, uh, you know, even if he never interacts with anyone, it would be a goddamn fun, beautiful comic. That would be revered in comics history. Just like Doctor Strange was. And that was with all Stanley's meddling and... You know, whatever. So, another uh, news story, news item. 1958, there's going to be more changes in Amazing Tales. One of them is pretty sad, because that year we're going to lose Robin Hood by Joe Manili. Why? Because Joe Manili died around that time. Very tragic, very silly death. He was on the subway in New York, and he tripped and fell in front of a train. It wasn't suicide from all the... From what everyone thinks, just a sad, stupid mistake. Maybe his shoes weren't tied that day. So Joe Manili, so much promise. Oh, my God. I, I'm pretty sure the history of comics, or at least the history of Marvel comics, would have been so different if he lived. He would have been up there with Jack Kirby as far as an architect of the Marvel Universe. And um, though he didn't have the creative vitality as far as creating characters as Jack Kirby... He definitely would have been a mainstay. So, of course, Jack Kirby's more important to the Marvel Universe because he actually created most of the characters, you know. But Joe Manili would have drawn the shit out of them after Jack Kirby created them. And uh, so we're losing Robin Hood. Now, what's going to take it over in the lead slot? Captain Nemo. Uh, you know, in a bunch of books. And um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And a few other ones. But, you know, we could spin a lot of freaking yarns about this stuff. Um, just this amazing, like, science hero in the 1800s. So it's very science fiction. And uh, I guess it's, people would now call it steampunk. Even though back then, it was just, wow, this is science fiction. But, uh, so we'd definitely, you know, recount the books. And, uh. 
and then also have adventures. What he, what was he doing in between those books? And what was he doing before when he was a young man? All that stuff. So that could be a lot of fun. Definitely could last for some years. And so, like I've said earlier, I'm not like some golden age comic expert. I know a handful of artists that I think are really good. There's probably maybe a better artist for this at the time. But, you know, why not? I got Reed Crandall. He's already drawing our, you know, he's been drawing our Seahawk comic. Obviously likes drawing the sea. And even though this isn't necessarily a pirate comic, even though Captain Nemo is kind of a super science pirate, I'm getting Reed Crandall to draw this one, too. And, uh, you know, Reed Crandall could draw the shit out of anything. One of the finest illustrators, like pure illustrators to work in comics. And so I think that would be a damn good series. It's got a lot of legs and go on well into the 60s. So the second feature continues to be Natty Bumpo by Frank Thorne. But we have another change now. The third feature, which has been Seahawk by Reed Crandall for a few years. We've, we've told enough tales of Seahawk since the 1950, adapted all the books, um, told a lot of stories about him before and after. So now we're just going to move right on to Captain Blood, another classic uh, pirate novel. Um, I think Sabatini, is that the author's name? I don't even know. Probably not that well written. I've never read it myself. But it's one of those things that classics illustrated would always illustrate. Like, yeah, it's not great literature, but it is a book. And it would be better if kids read an adaptation of this book than, I don't know, you know, some random superhero comic. Or definitely in the 50s, some horror comic, which was seen as a menace. So we got Captain Blood. Pretty much just another wrinkle on what Seahawks been doing. Another character in that pirate milieu. Throughout the 50s, pirate comics were not that successful, but kids loved pirates. I don't have the data to back this up, but even in the 70s, I knew every kid I knew was always fascinated by pirate shit. Um, and around this time, of course, there was Treasure Island from Disney, kind of rekindled a lot of uh, kids loving pirates and stuff. After that, we're still continuing with Canterbury Tales by Bill Elder. Uh, I already talked about that. I still want to talk about it, but I don't, there's no need. But that's going to be wonderful. Bill Elder drawing that shit. That's going to be some good stuff. And uh, last but not least, um, we're, we're going to lose D'Artagnan by Bernard Krigstein. I figure around this time, Bernard Krigstein's kind of phasing out of comics. I know in, uh, in the Amazing Comics reality, he definitely would have stuck around longer than he did. Because we would have been like, yeah... You know that comics are not for him, and we respect that, and we want to see what you're going to do with storytelling and stuff. But, you know, it was an uphill battle for him. He always wanted to do better stuff. He was tired of knocking his head against the wall with these editors who just wanted him to draw kitty stuff. But, uh, so, that's going to end, though. He's still going to be doing lots of short stories for us. Anytime he wants to adapt a short story, he'll be doing that. And, uh, you know, every now and then you might want to just jump in and uh, maybe even like do an original graphic novel for the Amazing Weekly Annual. Because like we said, Amazing Weekly Annuals will just be whatever, just a big story. Almost like graphic novels are today. Just a standalone. It could be anything. And so that's where that stands. But taking over, we're bringing back, at least for a little while, Greek myths. Greek myths. 
Because I don't think in 12 years or 11 years, we could have... I think there's still more Greek myths. And I would like to fully map out... Because it probably would be, even more than prose, it would be like if you read all the Greek myths that were published by our comic, my comic company, you would get like the full spectrum of every Greek myth. I like that idea. I've read many books when I was a kid, you know, like Edith Hamilton's Mythology. A lot of us read that when we were kids. And it didn't have every myth. And if you were really into it, you could find other things here and there. But this would just be like almost encyclopedic about like, if you read all these comics, you're going to know every freaking Greek myth, at least that we know that have survived. So I like that idea. And also, since I think we've gotten, you know, we're getting close to the end of maybe we will have time to do them all. It might alternate. Some months it might just be a great short story by Bernard Krigstein, adapting like a great Edgar Allan Poe story or an Ambrose Beer story. Some of the great short story writers of, you know, the past two centuries. And uh, there's a lot of great short stories out there. The shit we read in school, some of them are brilliant. So other artists too, of course, not just Bernard Crickstein, but all these great artists could do some good stuff, you know? And so I think that's a pretty damn good lineup. Once again, Amazing Tales is chugging along with some good shit. And that would just be a wonderful comic. Fucking Reed Crandall, Frank Thorne, Bill Elder. And then Amazing Artist doing the fifth rotating feature. I mean, that's some good stuff. I'm happy with it. So we got to get back one more thing in 1958. We got the Amazing Tales Annual. Comes out every summer. This year, I might be overworking the guy a little. Because he's already drawn Canterbury Tales and Amazing Tales you know, 12 pages a month. But I figure he could eke out one annual, you know, a nice 80-page story. So 1958, their Amazing Tales annual is Gulliver's Travels by Bill Elder once again. And I think that would be great. If you're going to do Gulliver's Travels, I can't think of many artists better than Bill Elder. Basically, I fucking love Bill Elder. I want to see him draw anything. And, you know, Gulliver's Travel, definitely one of the first big works of satire Jonathan Swift is basically like the father of satire so he would definitely play up the satiric elements just like in Mad Magazine um, but still it's a great kids comic I, I'm sorry book I read that when I was seven and I loved it I had no idea what the satire meant I did not get the layers of political you know allegory but you know it's fucking great Gulliver's Travels so that would be great fun comic also, an interesting take on it because we got Bill Elder, you know, punching up the satire in it. So that's 1958. We're done with that. So I think I'm going to keep going. This might be a long episode because there's a lot of changes in 1959. Um, some of the normal changes, but like the first time we're going to have some artist switcheroos. So the debuting title in 1959 is going to be. Warhawk by Joe Kubert, the king of, uh, you know, military comics, of war comics. And I don't think he reached his heyday, actually, until the mid to late 60s and early 70s. Um, if you've ever read Joe Kubert's uh, Sergeant Rocks from that period, they are so good. They're the, some of the best drawn comics of the time. You know, people always talk about, oh, Marvel Silver Age and... 
how great Jack Kirby's Thor was, you know, very quietly off in this corner of the DC universe doing war comics that were pretty much read by soldiers on PX, you know, from that they bought at the PX at the military bases, you know, but a lot of kids liked them too. But it wasn't like a big part of comics fandom. But man, if you've ever get a chance to get those comics, just beautifully drawn, even beautifully colored. Whoever was working on those books, it's the best coloring in, you know, late 60s, mid to late 60s, early 70s comics. I recommend, actually, I usually don't. I buy collections all the time. But if you can get your hands on the originals, they're never going to be able to duplicate those colors that they could somehow create with that primitive printing presses back then. It's worth owning them in their original editions. And I've been collecting them for years. Beautiful stuff. So I figure we just have this generic war character. And Warhawk. And in doing so, we'll also get to like really tell the history. He'll be like from before the war, even before the Nazis were declared war on us, or I should say we declared war in Japan and Germany. He's going to be like, you're going to basically see a history of World War II through his eyes because he's kind of like a freelance guy. And, you know, anytime there's some theater of action in the Pacific, anywhere, he's going to be there because he's like, you know, our secret weapon. He's a kick-ass soldier. He's not a superhero or anything, just an amazing, reliable soldier. So, yeah, I didn't like war comics as a kid. I like them now. This would just be your typical great, great war comic drawn by Joe Kubert, so you can't go wrong there. So that's Warhawk, our new title. Um, that year, there's going to be no changes in Amazing Tales. Everything's going to keep chugging along. and uh, But the Amazing Tales annual for that year in summertime is going to be an, another twofer, Gargantua by Elder, Bill Elder, I meant to say. So this seems even more apropos than any, you know, Gulliver's Travels or other things. Because I don't know if you've ever read Gargantua and Pantacruel. I read it in college. I never heard of it, about it. And it is a really just like, it is like Mad Magazine. But it's from, I think, the 1700s. It's a French book. And <clears throat> it is so irreverent and... You know, there's characters like shitting on other people's hands and stuff. Okay, I might have just made that up. But it's really like scatological almost. And it really, and I remember the professor at the time was saying, yeah, this is like Bad Magazine. He actually made that analogy. Because it's just really unlike any of those, you know, considered classics in the canon of Western literature. It is really just uh, fun stuff. Of course, I didn't get a lot of the humor because I don't live in 17th century France or 18th century France, but definitely I, I respected its manic, kooky energy. So Bill Eller's going to draw it and it'll just be, we're going to let him cut loose and draw all the nastiness and weirdness of Gargantua and Pantagruel. So I think another great addition. I'm thrilled by that. And, uh, Anytime I can get Bill Elder to draw Bernard Crickstein, it's always going to be great. So, okay, the big change this year, this is the first time this really happened. We're having a major lineup change. I figure these artists, 
they're not going to want to work forever on a title, no matter how well paid they are. They're going to get bored. I mean, I want to change a pace. You know, I've told all the tales about this character. I've drawn him 8,000 times. Um, I want to move on. So, this year, we're going to have some changes. First, Night Hunter, which came out in 1950, drawn by Bill Everett. It's kind of like a horror comic, our horror comic. But it's a continuing character, you know. And he's going to be fighting the supernatural and monsters, you know, every month. I don't even know if he has powers. He might have something. I'm sure he has some sorceress help, you know. Maybe at least some weapons that are magical. But he's basically like he knows how to fight monsters and the supernatural. So Bill Everett is leaving Night Hunter. And who's going to take over? Alex Toth. I know Alex Toth isn't known for his horror work. Alex Toth is basically the artist's artist. He's basically the guy, like, if you want, like, a 30s classic adventure tale. That's the main thing he's, like, kind of known for. Even though he drew everything. In the 40s, he was DC's star artist drawing just superhero comics. Drew amazing westerns in the 50s. Johnny Thunder for DC. He was everywhere. And then even in the 50s, um, oh, I'm sorry, I should mention, one of his major works was Zorro for Dell. He drew The Adventures of Zorro. And there's some amazing comics, like just his style. Alex Toth always had this individual style. By the late 50s, he starts really playing around with stuff in early 60s, really trying to stretch what comics can do, storytelling, um, thinking about the lines he's laying down. Like a real artist, you know? A lot of these comic artists didn't think like that. They were like, how quickly can I get this page done so I can get paid and uh, buy some booze and drink myself in, into a stupor and then commit suicide one day because I suck. But Alex Toth, amazing artist. Look him up. There's been a bunch of collections. Fanographics came out with a great one of all his early stuff. I've got the Zorro ones. I've seen some of his Zorro. That was the early 50s. Still pretty sedate, but still just great. He's a great cartoonist. He can't help it. So he's going to take over Night Hunter. Um, if you have read any of Warren magazines in the early 60s, Alex Toth did do some horror stuff for Creepy and Eerie. This is why I think it might be really interesting to have this, you know, definitely different comic. It's not some goofy superhero in spandex. So Alex Toth could, we just let him go crazy. Like, that crazy style of yours, your great style, you can tell any story you want. As long as, you know, it's about Night Hunter and he's fighting monsters. But there could be lots of character stuff in there. You know, it's not like a goofy superhero comic. He's got to punch a villain every, every other page. So, Bill Everett has left Night Hunter. He's going to go to Beowulf. Going to take over Beowulf. Even though Russ Heath hasn't been drawing him that long... It's just the way I laid it out, and I, I can't explain why. Even though Russ Heath is great, but I got a, I got a better comic for him to draw. You'll hear in a minute. So I think Bill Everett would do a fine job by the late fifties, and early, and definitely by the mid sixties. Bill Everett kind of morphed again, being this crazy fifties artist, almost like Basil Wolverton grotesqueries when he did horror comics. But he kind of smoothed out his style. He drew some uh, Submariner comics, the character he created way before in the mid-50s. And, you know, definitely more 
but he was great at that. He was a really good, just standard superhero artist. Um, more illustrative than most. Lots of lines on the paper, you know. Just really nice looking stuff. So, you know. But he could also draw like naked guys, as we've seen in Namor. So he had a good good enough sense of anatomy that he could draw Beowulf okay. I don't know if Beowulf's going to be half naked, but I just figure he's a barbarian. So that genre, you know. You can't just be a hack. It's easy to draw superheroes where everything's covered up. So he's going to take over Beowulf. So, you're asking, what happens to Russ Heath? Okay, so I'm not going to underutilize Russ Heath. So he is going to jump to Crimson Knight, the, our Knight comic, if you will. And uh, that is because Joe Manili died the year before. And let me just say, I just realized I made a mistake. He should have taken over in 58. Okay, this is a stretch, guys, I know. But a lot of times, guys back then, especially when they were as fast as Joe Manili, they'd work, you know, ahead. There might be months of inventory of their stuff ready to publish. So I'm just going to pretend that, yeah. Yeah, when Joe Manili died in 58, I believe. Uh, yeah, he, he was really ahead that, that year. And had like eight issues in the can. So we're going to be able to publish it until then. And uh, until 1959 when Russ Heath takes over. So by the late 50s, Russ Heath is really... He's really becoming the artist he becomes in the 60s. Just really beautiful. I mean, said it before, one of the, I think one of the great comic illustrators of all time. Maybe not the best storyteller, though he's damn good. But, you know, not innovative. But man, his pages, just so beautifully, just great stuff. And him drawing knights, you know, oh my God, this would be, this would be a beautiful fucking comic. And so he's going to take over Crimson Knight. Joe Manila's gone, unfortunately, even from the world. He's not even above ground anymore. So that's what's going to happen there. So, and then, as we've said earlier, Joe Kubert is now drawing Warhawk, our war comic. So who's going to take over Tor? Even though Joe Kubert created Tor, I'm sure he'd like time to draw both. But, you know, he does, you know... He's, I've told enough stories about cavemen. I want to do a war comic now. Which in our reality, he definitely seemed to have affinity for war comics. He stuck with them forever. And he loved them. Working with Robert Kaniger. So, Tor is going to be taken over by a new addition to our family here. And that is Alberto Giolitti. A paisan. And... That name isn't that well-revered in comics fandom and comics history. But everyone knows how great he is. He was the guy who drew Turok, Son of Stone, all those years for Dell. They never listed their artists. So he was an amazing cartoonist. Just those uh, Turoks, just beautiful to look at. Simple, clean, mastery uh, over just drawing faces and anatomy. Just really great cartooning. I mean, this guy could have drawn one of the classic 30s, 40s comic strips in the newspaper. People would have loved it. Amazing artist. So he drew Turok. Um, definitely started in the 50s in America. He was already drawing in Italy, obviously. He wasn't a little kid when he came over here. But Dell snatched him up. But in our reality, my reality, no, we snatched him up. Because we got feelers out there, even across the world, across the Atlantic Ocean. We're like, who are the best artists out there? 
how can we get them over to Amazing Comics and work for us? Because we don't want anyone stealing our thunder and beating us to the punch and nabbing that artist. Of course, they might have nabbed him, but we'd win him over because we treat him better, pay him more. So Alberto Giolitti will be taking over tour. You know, obviously he could draw great caveman adventures. He drew Turok, uh, about the Native American fighting dinosaurs in the Lost Land. But I think it would be a great comic. Anything Alberto Giolitti draws, especially if it's high adventure, different eras, you know, it would be great. So I'm really glad he's with us. Of course, whenever he has time, he'll be drawing stories in Amazing Weekly. Don't see him really drawing for Fun Weekly. Can't picture him drawing like cutesy, funny stuff for kids. But then, yeah, maybe he'll be drawing some of our annuals too. With some great long form story. So that's it. I did it. It's not that long an episode. I'm wrapping up the 50s. And uh, this was the time I was excited about. And uh, just to keep you abreast, Amazing Weekly still chugging along. Haven't really thought of any new features, but just use your imagination. Any great comic at the time, it would be an Amazing Weekly. And Fun Weekly as well, if it's a great kitty comic. you know. But uh, yeah, maybe at this point Captain Marvel will have ran its course in Fun Weekly by C.C. Beck. You know, it's been 20 years. Maybe it'll keep going, though. You know, kids like Captain Marvel. And... That guy came back to Captain Marvel in the 70s and uh, still really loved drawing the character. The scripts weren't very good. They were drawn by, you know, modern guys who didn't get it. But maybe if C.C. Beck was kind of in charge, even if he hired writers, but it would be his vision, it probably still would have remained popular. And, yeah, maybe Space Hawk by Basil Wolverton. That's probably phasing out to an amazing weekly. Um, You know. It's been 20 years of him drawing these comics. And basically, we want Basil Wolverton to be drawing funnier stuff, too. Even though this whole time during the 50s, he's drawing his amazing sci-fi horror comics like he did in our world. For Amazing Weekly and other things. So, uh, Prince Valiant will still be going forever, I guess. And maybe even Fighting American will still be going. That's got some legs. Jack Kirby satirizing superheroes. At the peak of his powers, doing some good stuff. And, oh yeah, one more thing. In Fun Weekly, yeah, Just In Time by Carl Barks will obviously still be going. Carl Barks did Donald Duck stories. He didn't even own those. And was treated like a, you know, a farmhand, itinerant worker. So he would definitely stick with Just In Time. He's got plenty of stories to tell. And John Stanley would still be creating some great shit for us. And so that's where we... Uh, leave off at the end of the 50s. I did it. And I didn't pass out. And there will be no snoring on this episode, I promise. So uh, if you have any comments, um, 503-880-4545. Leave me a text or call me. And uh, also, I'd really like to hear your fantasy comic book editor crap. Like, what, what are the kind of things you have in your head that you like to think about? The comic companies you like to make, even just little titles. So I'd like to hear that. And until next time, this is Greg Pettick signing off from the Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. Goodbye. <laughs>